Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In the early morning hours of October 5th, 1994, firefighters were called to a farm just outside of a tiny village in Switzerland. A barn and a garage were completely engulfed in flames. They battled the blaze for over four and a half hours before getting it under control. Amazingly, a farmhouse that was also on the property was untouched by the fire. When police went inside to look around, they made a gruesome discovery. The owner of the house, a 73-year-old man, was dead in his bed with a bag over his head and a bullet wound to the skull. What police found next shocked them even more. They discovered a hidden entrance to a secret room, also untouched by the flames. Inside the room, they found bodies dressed in ceremonial robes arranged in a circle on the floor. As they continued to search, they found more bodies in other rooms. And that was just the beginning. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and for the next few episodes of History of the 90s, we're looking back at doomsday cults and their rise to infamy in the years leading up to the new millennium. In part one, we uncover a religious sect with branches in Canada, Switzerland, and France. Its members included politicians, journalists, executives, and police officers. We'll look at how members hoping to start a new life instead found horrific and tragic ends. This is the little-known story of the Order of the Solar Temple. The 90s were a tumultuous time. The world was feeling more and more dangerous, and it often seemed like we were headed toward war, environmental destruction, and social breakdown. As a way to cope with an uncertain future, some people turned to new religions. Groups like the Order of the Solar Temple. The Solar Temple was founded in Geneva, Switzerland in 1984 by Luc Jure and Joseph de Mambro. Like many new religions or cults, it appealed to people who were seeking spiritual fulfillment outside of traditional religions. It was extremely secretive, so very little is known about the group's actual beliefs and how they operated. But here's what we do know. Its leaders predicted a global man-made catastrophe before the year 2000. They told followers that only those who subscribe to their strange blend of Catholicism, the occult, and astrology would escape the impending doom by transitioning from Earth to a new life on the star Sirius. The Solar Temple leaders also considered themselves heirs to the Knights Templar, the military religious order that was entrusted with guarding Christian pilgrims in the Holy Land during the Crusades. The Knights Templar grew to great wealth and power in the 12th century and were defenders of the Holy Grail. But in 1312, they were accused of heresy by King Philip IV of France, and the order was destroyed. Quite a few organizations that revived the medieval knights' rituals, symbols, and traditions continued to pop up during the 19th and 20th centuries, including the Order of the Solar Temple. (laughs) 
Luke Jarret, the Solar Temple's charismatic frontman, was born in Africa in 1947, in the Belgian Congo, or as we know it today, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He returned to Belgium with his family in the 1950s, and in 1974, he received a medical degree from the Free University of Brussels. But almost immediately, he became disillusioned with modern medicine. According to a pamphlet distributed by the Solar Temple in the 1980s, Jure spent 10 years searching around the world for the origins of illness and the best way of healing. He studied everything from acupuncture in China to high mountain medicine in the Andes and bush medicine in Africa. His long journey led him to homeopathic medicine, which he studied in Mexico and Argentina. But Jure had two almost paradoxical sides. In addition to his interest in becoming a homeopathic healer, he was also fascinated with religion and the occult. In the early 80s, he set up a homeopathic practice in France, near the border of Switzerland. And he also started traveling and lecturing around Europe and Quebec. His talks usually began by discussing homeopathic medicine, but then he quickly moved on to more religious and apocalyptic themes. This is him in a video that's still up on YouTube. Jure is being interviewed for a homeopathic conference in 1983. He was soft-spoken, dressed nicely in a suit and tie, and was handsome in an unassuming way. Rosemary Oplinger, one of his early followers, told McLean's magazine in 1995 that Jure was like John F. Kennedy. She said he was a charismatic leader, a nice-looking man, but one thing for sure is he always went after rich people. Among the groups he lectured was the Golden Way Foundation, a New Age group in Geneva, Switzerland, and he became close friends with the foundation's leader, Joseph DeMambro. No one predicted, though, that this friendship would lead to something much more sinister. Joseph de Mambro, the financial mastermind of the Solar Temple, was born in France in 1924. And before that fateful meeting with Jure, he had founded several New Age organizations of his own, including the Golden Way. It, too, was based on the mythology and the beliefs of Templar Knights. De Mambro had some success with the organization, but he knew if he wanted to expand, he needed an inspirational leader to attract more followers. An inspirational leader like Jure. In 1984, De Mambro teamed up with Jure, and together they formed the Order of the Solar Temple. Now, what's important to remember is that this group was highly secretive. So many of the details are very vague, but what we know is that Jure was the group's high priest and his charismatic frontman. He used his skills to recruit new members, while DeMambro fashioned himself as the group's connection to divine masters. He claimed he could receive and transmit messages and visions with them. At its peak in 1989, the Solar Temple had nearly 500 members. Unlike other cults, like, say, the Manson family that preyed on the most vulnerable members of society, Many of those who joined Jure and DeMambro were rich and highly educated. 
fact that people are intelligent and well situated financially does not make them any less in need either emotionally, spiritually, you know, psychologically. That's Michael Kropveld. He's the executive director of InfoCult, an organization in Quebec that he co-founded in 1980 to educate people about cults and other potentially dangerous movements and organizations. Kropfeldt and his co-founders were inspired to form the organization after they were forced to kidnap and deprogram a friend who'd been brainwashed by the Unification Church, better known as the Moonies. Kropfeld says the Order of the Solar Temple was quite selective with who they allowed into their organization. The way, a certain way I look at it is if you're going to start any kind of organization, who are you going to want to get involved? And in many cases, you're going to want the best educated, those who have the best resources, is kind of like you know, a business operation. You want the best. So especially if you're able to pick and choose, which was seemed to be the case with Solar Temple, you're going after those that are going to make, basically give the best kind of profile to the organization at the same time are going to be very committed because they're interested in what the group has to sell. At first, the Solar Temple operated in Switzerland and France. But around 1986, Jure and Demambro moved with some of their followers to an area of Quebec called the Laurentians. They bought a modern chalet complex on an acre of land in the little ski town of Morin Heights. The complex, which was valued at half a million dollars, was nestled in the birch trees of the Laurentian Mountains, about 60 kilometers north of Montreal. There were three units in the complex, and they were joined by passageways. Jure owned one unit, Demambro owned two. Neighbors say the property was always kept in good shape, the lawn was cut and the snow was plowed, but rarely did they see any people who lived there. Michael Kropfeld says Quebec was picked as the basis of operations, not just because the province is French-speaking. Quebec is considered, you know, at certain times, it's a very fertile terrain for the emergence of different spiritual religious groups uh, since the, let's say, demise, I wouldn't say demise, but rather the, the change, dramatic change in terms of the role that the Catholic Church once had in Quebec and that kind of vacuum that, that created once the kind of power and role that the church had in Quebec changed. The Solar Temple also established an organic farm in Quebec at a former monastery in a sleepy little village called Saint-Anne-de-la-Parade on the banks of the St. Lawrence River. They bought the 100-year-old monastery and 100 acres of land for $235,000. They grew organic tomatoes, carrots, and other vegetables, which fit in with Jure's initial focus on living a holistic lifestyle. The Solar Temple also bought a farmhouse in the ritzy ski village of St. Sauveur, just minutes away from Morin Heights. This is where Jure hosted motivational retreats on the weekend. People paid between $300 and $500 to hear Jure lecture about the benefits of homeopathic medicine. He also held expensive seminars for business people on personal development. From what we can tell, these lectures and seminars were a lucrative business, but they were kept separate from the group's spiritual beliefs. Over time, though, Jure seemed to become more and more obsessed with an upcoming apocalypse. And in 1988, he announced to his followers that the world would soon be engulfed in warfare and famine. 
he said only Quebec would be spared. As part of their religious ceremonies, members of the Solar Temple would join Jurey late at night, dressed in hooded robes of red, black, gold, or beige, as Jurey delivered long sermons about the decadence of modern civilization and man's alienation from nature. A video made by the Solar Temple, which came to light years later, shows men and women with blurred-out faces in long white capes with red crosses over their hearts. They're walking solemnly throughout a candlelit room, carrying ornate swords and drinking champagne. Jure told members that only 100 people would be selected to survive the impending doom, and he would be the one to decide who lived and who died. According to the book Doomsday Cults by Alan Warren, Jure started to exert strict control over cult members by doing things like telling them who they could marry, and in some cases, dissolving existing marriages altogether. And eventually, Jure changed his prophecy. He no longer believed Quebec would be spared from the apocalypse. Instead, he claimed the only way members could survive was by transitioning to a new life on the star Sirius. And this would be done by committing suicide. The change in the group's direction eventually caused friction among members. Some were angry and they were very concerned and began to question Jure's leadership. While others, well, they decided to quit altogether. Things were not going as planned for Jure and Demambro. But it was just the beginning. Things would get much worse in 1993 when the Solar Temple became the subject of a major police investigation in Quebec. Jure and two of his followers were charged with trying to purchase revolvers that were equipped with silencers, which are illegal in Canada. After the arrest, police also began investigating Jure and the Solar Temple in connection with another incident that happened the year before. In November 92, a paramilitary group known as Q37 threatened to assassinate Canada's public security minister and to bomb First Nations reserves. Police had received a tip that the Solar Temple was behind the threats. They raided the complex in Morin Heights, but were never able to get the evidence they needed to prove any wrongdoing. They found nothing tying anyone to the assassination threat. So after that investigation went nowhere, Jure and two of his followers pleaded guilty to weapons charges. Jure paid a $1,000 fine and was given a conditional discharge. The other two men received six months probation. One of the men who pleaded guilty with Jure was a project manager from Hydro-Quebec, the province's giant public utility, which oversees billions of dollars in income and operating assets. His arrest and connection to the cult was a major concern, and it sparked fear that Hydro-Quebec had been infiltrated at the highest levels. So in response, Hydro-Quebec launched a massive investigation. The utility admitted that at least 15 employees had been members of the Solar Temple at some point, but had done so on their own time. The investigation found that Luc Charest used Hydro-Quebec offices in 1988 and 1989 to speak to employees about things like self-fulfillment and employee productivity. But all of the meetings were done after hours. 
Jure was paid about $4,000 for the trading sessions. It was never made clear, though, if Hydro-Quebec paid his fees or if employees used their own money. Despite all of those findings, Hydro-Quebec concluded that there had been no wrongdoing. With the increased scrutiny in Canada after the gun charges, both Jurey and DeMambro decided to leave the country. They moved back to Switzerland. But the troubles didn't end. It seemed like the Solar Temple was running out of time. DeMambro was 70 years old and had grown quite sick, and he'd become extremely paranoid. He was consumed by the belief that the group was under surveillance by authorities. Some members started to question his leadership abilities as well. They accused him of being a fake, that he used magic tricks during ceremonies to simulate illusions and spiritual experiences. And there was also the matter of DeMambro's expensive lifestyle, which rubbed some members the wrong way. He reportedly had four Ferraris and a Lamborghini at one of his homes in Geneva. Many members started to believe they'd been swindled and they wanted out. They began asking for refunds of up to $50,000. With pressure growing from all sides, DeMambro, Jure, and a fanatical inner circle of 13 members called The Awakened decided it was time to act. It was time to transition to a new life on Sirius, the brightest star in the Earth's sky. DeMambro and his inner circle believed they could only depart for Sirius after passing through a fiery death, which would purify their spirit. They believed they could instantly transport to this new, better world on Sirius by committing suicide. The group did not sell it as suicide. People on the outside call it a suicide. Members who obviously view it, you know, differently, make it, it makes it easier. You're not, going, you're not going to kill yourself, which is final. You're going on a transit, which is like you're going on a voyage. So it's not an ending, but rather a continuation down to another level of existence. Jure and DeMambro decided if there were other members that didn't go along with the group's plan, they would have to be murdered. And before the fiery voyage to a new world could take place, there was something else that needed to be taken care of. DeMambro insisted that they must first kill an infant that he had targeted as the Antichrist. The dramatic exit plan was set in motion on September 29, 1994, when DeMambro sent two of his devout followers from Switzerland to Quebec. Dominique Bellaton and Joel Egger were given instructions to kill a baby that DeMambro claimed was the Antichrist. Three-month-old Christopher Emmanuel Dutois was the son of Tony and Nikki Dutois. The couple had been members of the Solar Temple and had worked for DeMambro as a landscaper and a nanny. But they had started pulling away from the group three years earlier in 1991. Before they left, DeMambro forbid Nikki from having a child. And when the order was ignored, the cult leader was enraged. He believed the baby was a threat to his cosmic child, Emmanuel. The 12-year-old lived in Switzerland, and he claimed she'd been conceived by a female member without having sexual contact with him. When Bellaton and Egger arrived in Quebec on September 29th, they drove to Morin Heights and met up with Jerry and Colette Genaud. 
two members of the cult who still lived in the chalet owned by the Solar Temple. They were Swiss citizens who helped come up with a plan to kill baby Christopher and his parents. On the morning of October 3rd, the Dutois family was invited to the Morin Heights Chalet under the guise of visiting Bellaton, who was an old friend. But as soon as they arrived at the chalet, they were brutally attacked. I need to take a minute here and warn you that the details of what happened are pretty graphic. Nikki Dutois was stabbed 14 times, four times in the throat. This is an area of the body that cult members believed was central to the birth process. Her husband, Tony, was beaten over the head with a baseball bat. His throat was slashed, and he was stabbed 50 times in the chest. Little baby Christopher was stabbed through the heart several times. There have been conflicting reports on whether the murder weapon was a knife or a wooden stake. The next day, on October 4th, Bellaton and Egger drove the Dutois' car to Montreal's Mirabel Airport and boarded a flight back to Zurich, Switzerland. Jerry and Colette Genaud stayed behind to begin preparations for the next step in DeMambro's disturbing plan. First, they cleaned the house to purify it for the transit to Sirius. Then, they connected timers to an ignition device hooked up to several containers of gasoline. Next, they consumed a strong tranquilizer, and a few hours later, when they were unconscious but still alive, the house ignited and the two went up in flames. A neighbor who believed the complex was unoccupied called the fire department. And after volunteer firefighters put out the blaze, they discovered the charred bodies of a man and a woman inside. Colette was on a bed in a second-floor bedroom. Her husband, Jerry, was found in a sitting position against a wall in the bedroom. They were both wearing solar temple medallions around their necks, which featured one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse carrying a skull and sickle. The bodies of Nikki, Tony, and baby Christopher weren't found for two days because one of the ignition devices had failed and the chalet unit they were in did not catch on fire. And so there was no reason for firefighters to search inside their unit initially. When they did, what they found was ghastly. Not only did they discover the bodies of Nikki and Tony, who had been brutally beaten and stabbed, but also the body of baby Christopher. There was a bag over his head, and his little body was stuffed behind a water heater. There was a small ceremonial wooden stake nearby. Meanwhile, in Switzerland, 16 hours after the fire in Morin Heights, the next part of the dramatic exit plan took place. Remote-controlled devices ignited simultaneous fires in two small villages. A fire in Cherie, Switzerland, destroyed a garage and a barn. But something had gone wrong with one of the devices, and the farmhouse on the property was untouched. Inside, police found the body of the property owner, a 73-year-old man. He had a bag over his head, and he'd been shot. As police continued to search the house, they found handbags, suitcases, clothing, along with Swiss, French, and Canadian passports. They also noticed traces of blood on the floor. Then they found a false door leading to another room. The room appeared to be some sort of chapel. The walls were covered in red satin and mirrors. 
And in the center of the room, there was an altar with a golden chalice on it. There was also a portrait of Jesus hanging over the pulpit. But over the face of Jesus was a picture of Luke Jurey. On the floor, inspectors found 18 bodies arranged in a sun-like circle. Most of them were wearing ceremonial robes. Some had their hands held in prayer. Four other bodies were found in other rooms. In total, there were 23 people dead. Some bodies had plastic bags over their heads. Some were handcuffed. 20 had been shot. 160 kilometers away in the village of grange sur salvain fire also ravaged two ski chalets. There, 25 more bodies were found in the rubble. One was shot, the rest had been poisoned and suffocated. In the end, 48 people were found dead in Switzerland, including seven children. Among the dead were also seven Canadians. Robert Astigui, the 50-year-old mayor of a small town in Quebec, and his wife, 47-year-old Francois Asseline, were found in Switzerland. Asseline flew there just days before in an effort to save her husband. Astigui had joined the Order of the Solar Temple about three years earlier. He had even taken a leave from his job as mayor in Richelieu to travel to Switzerland in August. He was supposed to come back in September, but Ostegi called town staff two times to tell them he was extending his trip. Last night, city employees lowered the flag in the small town of Richelieu, 25 kilometers south of Montreal. Inside City Hall, people were shocked. This man is convinced Ostegi was murdered. He was not the type to commit suicide, he said. André Ducharme, Global News, Montreal. Among the other Canadians who died in Switzerland was Jean-Pierre Venet, the senior manager with Hydro-Quebec who pleaded guilty with Jurey in the weapons case years earlier. Venet's wife was also among the dead. So too was 44-year-old Jocelyn Grandmaison. She was a municipal affairs reporter for the newspaper The Journal de Quebec. Jurey and Demambro's bodies were also found along with the Canadians. Demambro died with his wife Jocelyn and 12-year-old Emmanuel by his side. Police were completely stunned by what they found. Up until then, not much was known about the Order of the Solar Temple. At first, it appeared to have been a collective suicide, then a mass execution. Now, authorities say it's a combination of both. Either way, the gruesome case fulfilled Jure's doomsday prophecies. Real explanation for the deaths may never be known. A few days after the fire, police got some answers when four suicide letters were delivered to the media in Switzerland and France. A fifth letter was sent to the Ministry of the Interior in France. They were all mailed from Geneva the day of the fires and explained that members of the group had left Earth and were in transit to the star Sirius. In the letters, the group blamed constant investigations and surveillance by governments and police for the cult's mass deaths. They said, and I quote, Faced with police intimidation that we are constantly victims of, we have decided in all consciousness to leave this world. Police eventually found out who mailed the letters, and it wasn't DeMambro or Jouret. It was Patrick Varnay. He's the youngest son of the French ski legend and sunglass icon, Jean Varnay. 
Patrick Varney, who was a member of the Solar Temple, said that he was handed sealed documents by DeMambro only hours before the tragic events in Switzerland took place. He was given instructions to mail them the next day. Varney's lawyer told the media that his client had no idea what the documents contained. Following a lengthy investigation, Swiss police concluded that 15 people who were part of an inner circle called the Awakened, including Jure and DeMambro, died by suicide. They consumed a powerful mixture of poison and sedatives. They apparently all believed they were leaving Earth for a better planet and they had no fear of dying. Police said the remainder of the dead had been murdered, although they admitted some may have wanted to die with their leaders. The next chapter in this saga came in December 1995. The Order of the Solar Temple was suddenly back in the news when 16 members of the cult were reported missing. The missing included three children, ages two, four, and six, and this time the wife and son of French ski legend Jean Varnet. Police had reason to believe that another mass murder-suicide had happened or was about to happen. They found four cars belonging to the missing cult members parked near a cross-country ski centre in the mountains near Grenoble, France. 500 officers were called in and they began a frantic search through the remote forest surrounding the centre. The search ended the next day with a grisly discovery. Bullet wounds were found on all the bodies discovered yesterday, laying in star formation around a campfire in a remote clearing in the French Alps. The bodies have been transferred to the morgue in the nearby city of Grenoble for a complete autopsy beginning Tuesday. But investigators have already determined that the wounds are from two different caliber bullets, which are being compared with pistols and a shotgun found on the scene. The prosecutor said police also found packets of toxic chemicals and sedatives, which may have been administered to the cult members before their death. What investigators wonder now is whether the massacre was planned with the consent of the victim and whether the organizers died with the other Solar Temple adepts, or whether a mass murderer may still be at large. Sarah Chase, Global News, Paris. Among the dead were three young children, along with Edith and Patrick Varnay, as well as two French police officers. The investigation by officials eventually determined that the group of people had been lured to the Alpine clearing by one of the officers along with another member. At 1 a.m. on December 16, 1995, the 14 members willingly left their cars in the ski resort car park. Then they walked about a mile through thick pine woods and settled down around a campfire. It's believed that the victims thought they were being called to witness an apparition of Joe DeMambro. Instead, they were drugged and shot by the two men, who then set them on fire and then shot themselves. The final chapter of this story happened in March 1997 in St. Casimir, a rural community west of Quebec City. Firefighters were called to a scene of a fire. When they arrived, they saw three teenagers stumbling out of a shed beside a burning house. Two boys, aged 13 and 16, along with a girl, aged 14, appeared drugged and incoherent, and they were calling out for their father. Firefighters discovered that both of their parents and their grandmother were dead. 
Five people were killed in a house fire that police believe was deliberately set by the victims, all of whom were current or past members of a doomsday cult. Police found gasoline containers and portable electric stoves in a bedroom in the home. They believe that's what sparked the blaze. The dead are believed to be this man, 39-year-old Didier Kais, and his 41-year-old wife. They own the home. Police say the bodies were laid out in the shape of a cross with another couple's, a 49-year-old man and his 54-year-old wife. One more body was found, a 63-year-old woman, on a couch in the living room with a plastic bag over her head. She was Kais's mother-in-law. A letter was found inside the home which spoke of preparing men, women, and children for a voyage to the sky. A copy of the letter had also been sent to Montreal's La Presse newspaper. The letter indicated that this latest suicide had been planned since 1994 when the first mass deaths of Solar Temple members had occurred. It stated that all three departures in 1994, 95, and 97 were actually one and the same transit. The three teenagers who escaped the fire told police that their parents and other cult members had initially rigged propane tanks to ignite a fire a day earlier to coincide with the spring equinox. But the mechanism rigged to the tanks didn't work and the fire wasn't lit. The parents and the other members planned to try again with the fire, and this time the teenagers begged them not to proceed. The parents gave their kids a choice, either follow them on the voyage or stay on their own. The teens decided to stay. Police said they took sleeping pills so they didn't have to watch their parents die. Then they went to sleep in the shed, which was far enough away from the house so they wouldn't be touched by the flames. The parents had been deeply involved with the Order of the Solar Temple cult when it was operating in the Laurentians and apparently had been close friends with Luke Jurey. In response to the Solar Temple deaths, in 2001, the government of France passed Europe's toughest anti-cult legislation. It allows judges to order the dissolution of any sect whose members are convicted of a criminal offense. It also banned religious sects from advertising and recruiting new members near schools, hospitals, or retirement homes. And the legislation created a controversial new crime of mental manipulation which is defined as exercising heavy and repeated pressure on a person to induce them to behave in a way prejudicial to their interests. The legislation was denounced by the Church of Scientology and the Unification Church. They called it fascist, anti-democratic, and a breach of basic human rights laws. In 2009, the law was used when a French court fined the Church of Scientology nearly a million dollars, after a couple claimed that they'd been manipulated into buying $70,000 worth of church products. France also launched an extensive investigation into the 1994 deaths. They wanted to know if there was anyone else still alive who could be held responsible for the tragedy. A five-year investigation led police to a prominent orchestra conductor and composer, Michel Tabachnik and he was charged with participating in a criminal association. Tabachnik, who was once considered one of France's leading classical conductors, was a friend of Demambros and a member of the cult during the 80s and the 90s. Prosecutors said he held a senior position in the Solar Temple, calling him Demambros' crown prince. They essentially accused Tabachnik of brainwashing members. 
court heard that the conductor encouraged members to commit suicide in various writings, which the prosecution called a, quote, demonic doctrine. In his defense, Tabachnik claimed he was naive and he had also been a victim of Demambro. Following a nine-day trial, Tabachnik was acquitted. Three French judges ruled prosecutors failed to prove that the orchestra conductor was criminally responsible for the deaths of 74 cult members in Europe and Canada. But French prosecutors wouldn't let it go. They appealed the ruling, and four years later, Tabachnik was put on trial again in France. In December 2006, the appeals court upheld his acquittal. After his lengthy legal battle, Tabachnik returned to his career. He's currently chief emeritus for the Brussels Philharmonic, where he directs several concerts per season. Very few surviving members of the Solar Temple have spoken publicly about their involvement with the group. It's safe to say they might not want to revisit that period of their life. Because of the mystery that surrounds the Solar Temple, there are many unanswered questions to this day, including why so many educated, well-off people joined the group. What were they looking for? And what were they promised? The fact that the Solar Temple attracted police, politicians, civil servants, journalists, and millionaires seems at odds with what we think of when we talk about cults. But in reality, the search for meaning in an era where there's a growing lack of trust in traditional religions crosses all socioeconomic groups. And Michael Kropfeld says almost everyone has had a period in their life when they feel more vulnerable. No matter how bright or intelligent you may be, you may, like everyone else, go through similar kind of crises and difficulties emotionally in your life. There may be a breakup in your relationship, the death of a loved one, questions about, you know, existential questions that come up. So at those times, you're more open. And the relationship you develop with a group is often an emotional one, which is almost like falling in love with somebody and you hear the expression of love is blind. So in many ways, people and I have described their involvement in the group almost in those terms. It's like, it's almost like, wow, I found what I'm looking for. It's giving me the answers. It's responding to whatever I've been looking for. So it's emotional. So no matter how intelligent you are, you know, there are different, I think, times in one's life where you go through dips. And at those times, at those dips, you're more open to hearing things that at other times you probably wouldn't accept or question more. Another important unanswered question does the Order of the Solar Temple still exist today? Well, there is no solid evidence. But of course, there's a ton of speculation and rumors that as many as a few hundred followers remain throughout the world who still believe in the teachings of Luc Jure and Joseph de Mambro. The Order of the Solar Temple wasn't the only doomsday cult that made news in the 1990s. It seemed like every couple of years, there was another harrowing story of death and destruction. So on the next episode of History of the 90s, we'll take a look at two more of those groups. One was responsible for a deadly attack on the Tokyo subway system, and the other orchestrated a mass suicide in a California mansion. Thanks for listening to this episode on the strange and devastating story of the Order of the Solar Temple. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to my guest, Michael Kropfeld from InfoCult. 
If you've got an idea for a show, please let me know. We've been getting a ton of great ideas. Please keep them coming. You can always reach me through Twitter at 1990s History. I'm on Instagram and Facebook. And you can email me directly at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free always at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. And you can always listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you're new to the show, please go back and check out some of our older episodes. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.